At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When we interviewed women, I, I would ask, I would say, how did you even know, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, where to meet up with each other? And they just sort of looked at me and said, we had this thing called a telephone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we would exchange numbers. And um, some women told of like, of sort of literally one woman in Mexico City was talking about being in a park and seeing a woman in a uniform and following her down wow. the street to say, where are you doing this? Where are you playing? Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, our guest is a professor of history at Hofstra University and the author, along with Joshua Nadel, of the book Futbolera, A History of Women in Sports in Latin America. This is our World Cup preview show. Very excited about it. Her name is Brenda Elsie. So excited to have her on. She's also the co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, which I cannot recommend enough. Also, I've got some choice words about the latest developments in the Braden Bradforth case, the young man who lost his life playing football, or actually he wasn't playing football, he was involved in non-contact drills at Garden City Community College in Kansas. Uh, In addition, I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and more, but first, let's go to Brenda Elsie. Brenda Elsie, Futbolera, A History of Women in Sports in Latin America, what made you tackle this as a topic? Well, Josh and I had both written our first books on men's, the history of the men's game with some research into the women's game. And neither of us were were very satisfied with our own treatment of it. And it just felt like there was so much more there going on. And we met one another at conferences and we would kind of talk about an idea for a project about women and it just sort of came together and we were very surprised actually at how much activity there was over the last hundred years in women's soccer in Latin America. But the book is not just about women's soccer. So we actually went further than than our usual wheelhouse in that sense. Where did you go? I mean, a lot of the prescriptions for women, whether it's physical education or in clubs were marginalizing them from soccer and suggesting other things. Mm. So the book looks at the history of physical education, which goes from like a Swedish model in the late 19th century where women were supposed to do harmonic stretches that would make them aesthetically pleasing for a male gaze and wouldn't disrupt their quote unquote maternal health all the way to women's basketball, which was huge in Latin America in the 1940s, volleyball, tennis. You know, we, we tried to look at look at the sports in relation to each other and analyze the physical culture more broadly. Hmm. Now, early basketball for women in the United States was played in a way that um, decried any sort of physical contact or overexertion. Was, was that similar in Latin America or was it played more like we understand today? 
No, absolutely. It was brought by the YWCA and YMCA. So it's very much based on a U.S. model, um, especially, in, you know, starting in like Brazil in the 19 teens, Argentina. And um, basically women just begin to ignore that from from what you read by the early 1940s they're jumping they're they're jostling it's exciting they're touching they're making contact and um the mexican team too they the teams from mexico do a lot of circuits around the united states so they're very very much in the same place um with yes the authorities are telling them what they should be doing and yes they are totally ignoring that now, Latin America, of course, is a vast and varied place. Uh, what countries did you focus upon and why? Well, we, we looked for the very first sort of organized evidence of sports clubs and women's um, activity and physical education. So we started with, you know, Argentina, Chile, um, some in Bolivia in terms of physical education. But most of the book settles on Brazil and Mexico. And that has to do with the fact that Brazil had the most draconian legal ban, governmental ban of women's soccer but not only soccer, rugby, polo, some decathlon, pentathlon. So, so we looked at, at that because it's a, a really fascinating case and has to do with like the particular place, you know, the particular politics of Brazil, but also was like an example of how prohibitive was the landscape. So a couple chapters on Brazil and then a couple on Mexico, um, which became very important. I mean, it's always important because it's the bridge between you know, the Americas, and um, it's a huge sporting culture, but also really interesting in the way in which um, the, the soccer just develops there. Mm. Now, when we think stereotypically about soccer in Latin America, and when we put those phrases together, we think of obsession with the sport on the men's side, and we think of these incredibly enthusiastic uh, crowds that are also largely uh, male-dominated. Where, where and when do you start to see that change? Like, I guess I'm trying to ask, what kind of penetration does soccer love get in communities of women in Latin America, and how intense is it? And, uh, and was there a period in time where you saw a serious change towards a more um, intense love of the sport? Yeah, I'm, I mean, it happens at different places and different times, but a couple of interesting examples, uh, you know, the case of Brazil, women are playing in the early 1900s, uh, sometimes surreptitiously in places like the circus. The circus was a big place, traveled around the country, and women would kind of uh, dress up in the local rivalries, and they would get local women to participate with them in games. And throughout the 20s and 30s, it just gets more and more and more popular and it starts to fill stadiums and be a sort of predecessor to some major men's games, Flamengo, you know, some huge clubs in Brazil. And even in 1940, it's a women's game along with the men's games that inaugurate the municipal stadium of Sao Paulo, Estadio Pacambu. And that is precisely why the Vargas administration bans it, is because it has then, by 1941, become massively popular. The newspapers say that they estimate about 1,001 games per day of women's soccer. 
um, and a league forms in Rio by 1941. So it's it's exactly that kind of enthusiasm that you see. And among women, then they never stop playing anyway. The Brazilian women never stop playing, but it does push it underground. So they can even fill stadiums in Minas Gerais and other interior provinces in 1950s. But Rio and Sao Paulo, it clearly has a negative effect on on the game. Um, Costa Rica, it becomes massively popular in the 1950s because of a particular team. The Bonilla brothers start with their sisters and form this just just super charismatic group of young women. So it happens in different times in different places. But that's a couple. Those are a couple of examples. Now, I was going to ask you, you mentioned uh, the Vargas administration. There's sections in the book about military dictatorships. Can you speak about how that affected the development of women and their ability to interact with the world of soccer? Well, military when military personnel are running sports administrations, uh, soccer included, they obviously put a high priority on hierarchy and gender segregation. On top of that, military organization uh, did not encourage civil society's growth and vibrance when it came to, you know, progressive women challenging gender ideologies. So almost across the board, it's it's not a great thing um, for 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 women's sport to have an authoritarian government with an interest in rolling back women's civil rights. Um, that said, you can have a, a non-military government like Jair Bolsonaro today that's not great for promoting women's rights either. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the, in, in the case of Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, um, in essence, civic associations were targeted as part of the resistance. And so when women are trying to find spaces in these clubs and and find public spaces that they can play in, it's certainly hampering. It sounds almost like prohibition in the United States in the 1920s, like people looking for uh, almost underground venues to express their love of the sport. Yeah, I mean, when we interviewed women, I I would ask, I would say, how did you even know, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, where to meet up with each other? And they just sort of looked at me and said, we had this thing called a telephone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we would exchange numbers. And um, some women told of like of sort of literally one woman in Mexico City was talking about being in a park and seeing a woman in a uniform and following her wow. down the street to say, where are you doing this? Where are you playing? Um, we interviewed Golden Boot winner from the 99 World Cup Sissy, former national for the Brazilian team. And we asked her, you know, how did you deal with the ban? And she said, oh, my gosh, I was in this small little town in the interior of Bahia. And I thought to myself, who on earth is going to care? Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of them just sort of flagrantly figured, you know, take me on and challenge me. And there are some court cases against women. Um, when the authorities do find out. And there's a lot of social shaming, even when there aren't official bans. Mm. Now, th- one of the great things about the book is that there's just so much primary research. Um, I-, I wanted to ask you if you had one experience either in Latin America or doing one of these interviews that moved you personally as you explored this subject. 
I think interviewing Sissy was really touching for me on the one hand, because when I was growing up, I watched that World Cup and she was amazing. Um, but also because of the trajectory of her life being born while the sport was banned, pulling the heads off of her dolls to practice because she wasn't given any balls. She moved away from home at 14 because she found some teams like Radar in in Rio and, and other places and then was treated so poorly by the Federation that she never really stayed to play in Brazil. She played out the career her career in the United States and she's a coach in California today. And at one point, um, even after the band is lifted, the Sao Paulo Federation starts to require that women who play have hair long enough to make a ponytail. Mm. And they keep that through the 1990s and early 2000s. And Sissy shaves her head. Wow. And she and she never plays again. So the store in Brazil, I mean, she plays in the U.S. This is amazing. <laughs> the women's professionally. But um, but the personal sacrifice that they make and, and the ways in which they try to creatively protest, even when they're being shut down, is really inspiring. And where do you see the sport right now in Latin America? Because logic would say that Latin American women should be crushing the United States uh, <laughs> as they do in the men's side. And yet the United States women, for reasons that... I mean, I would argue, and please tell me if I'm wrong, are probably linked with Title IX and generations of development around the sport, you know, really stand astride uh, women's soccer. Absolutely. The, the favorites in the World Cups. Yeah, so if you could just speak about that, about where, where they are right now in Latin America relative to the U.S. and where you see this trajectory going. Well, Title IX has been tremendous for U.S. women's soccer, and to be honest with you, for global women's soccer, because many women in Latin America go to U.S. universities, and they are, you know, it's a dream to play in the facilities of a Division I school for many of them. On top of that, soccer is not the national sport here, and so it's not so threatening to have women play it. And so, yeah, there are those generations. I would almost say it's easier to compare, you know, North American football. Like, what are what's women's progress like in the NFL or MLB? Mm. Um, it's it's hard to say, like, why they've had so much success in the U.S. versus Latin America without taking that into account, right? Um, the feminist movement right now, Ni Una Menos, has been amazing in terms of expanding ideas of feminism and taking on sport. And that has made a huge difference at the grassroots. It means that in places like Chile, Argentina, Brazil, women are getting spots on the club directorates. They're making their own fan associations, taking back the stadiums, and they're also organizing around the national women's team. So Chile is going to be in this Women's World Cup for the very first time because of women's own organizations, not because of the federation Argentina is coming back for the first time since 2007, and Brazil will be there as always. Um, Mexico sadly didn't qualify, but it'll be awesome to see Jamaica. That'll be really, really cool. Um, so all of all of that is going to be great fun. However, the just stark lack of resources and gaps between the men's and the the support for the men's and the women's national team means, you know, I honestly don't expect them to get out of group stages. Brazil, maybe. 
and Brazil probably and and the others no and that's I hate saying that because I want to see them go as far as possible because they're beautiful players mm. now we to make a I don't think so awkward transition are you going to be attending this year's World Cup uh, in France I am I am and I'm also um, working with the Farinet work and so there's a diversity house in paris that they're setting up so i'll be there and then i'll be going to games um argentina (laughs) versus scotland u.s versus chile brazil versus italy so i'm super excited and i'm bringing my daughters wow that that sounds like a remarkable experience yeah Uh, i think so too wow so who are you excited to watch uh teams and players i'm not even necessarily live but I guess a better way to ask it would be, who should my listeners be looking out for? Oh, your listeners should keep their eye on Japan as a sort of, you know, underdog. Um, The U.S. is, yes, ranked number one. And there's going to be England, Australia, France, Germany. They'll all be doing really good. Um, but I would say super fun to watch. It's got the longest professional league is the Japanese team. Also Formiga, my very favorite player in the whole world is the anchoring midfielder for Brazil. This will be her seventh world cup. Mm. And how old is she now? 41. And yeah, no, and midfield. And she runs the entire time. She was just re-signed at Paris Saint-Germain. So she also plays in France and has her own kind of, you know, fan club there. Uh, Given the pay to play in Brazil, she's also one of the last Afro-Brazilian players on the team. And she's just a gem. She's just absolutely a joy to watch. So um, I want to appreciate her one last time. Nice, nice. And you mentioned Japan, but who has the best chance of knocking off the old USA? Um, Who has a puncher's chance of knocking off the USA? I think Australia. I think Japan. I think Japan always could. You know, they've done it before. They know the team really well. They do some great scouting, great coaching. You know, but anything can happen. It's a World Cup. It's one game. It's one game, you know. So at that point, you know, after group stages. So uh, that makes it exciting, and it means kind of anything could happen. Um, That said, the U.S. has an amazing team this year. Yeah, they're just stacked top to bottom, like maybe even more than, than last time. Uh, at least offensively at least offensively you're talking you know you could have nine forwards (laughs) yeah and I was going to ask you one person who's getting a lot of attention on the U.S. is Julie Ertz can you tell us anything about her that you're excited to see or or uh peruse um you know I honestly I haven't watched too much I've been so sort of engrossed um in what's been going on I know her in the Red Stars Mm mm-hmm but I haven't I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to her in the last friendlies just because I assume I saw the US beat New Zealand and it's just not a game I expected to go any other way. So I haven't been paying a ton of attention to her. Mm-hmm. It'll be very interesting. I, I mean, I think she could end up being the, the breakout star of this World Cup. It'll be interesting to see. Um, yeah. one, one, one more question for you. I actually have... Two more questions. Uh, the collaboration with Joshua Nadel. I know he co-wrote the book with you, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, what was that like, uh, writing a book uh, in collaboration with, with another uh, researcher, author, academic? How did that go and any future projects together? Well, you know, 
I think we got really lucky. We really didn't know each other very well. And it just seemed like an academic match. And we used Google Docs Mm. to to write so much of it, which is not great on footnotes. And this book has about a bazillion footnotes because, like you said, there is quite a lot of primary research. In the middle of it, Josh moved to Greece um, because his, his partner is working on refugee camps, which is obviously incredibly important work. So we did not see each other for four years. We started the project wow. and we did not see each other until last week at NYU with the book in our hands. And so wow. it's a lot. That I know a, that must have been a moment. It was, it was so, it was such a happy moment. It was such a happy moment, but we just, you know, we talked to each other. Technology is sort of an amazing thing. I was in Argentina for part of it. He's in Greece, you know, and we're still like WhatsApping all day long. Um, and Josh is a rabid women's soccer fan. So he just sort of always links back the project to what's happening now. You know, let's, Let's think about the reasoning that people gave for denying women resources and let's get at it historically and chip it away. So so he's really he was always wonderful at kind of looping back the historical project and getting me out of, you know, the early 20th century and like nerd mode and being like, okay, but let's remember why this is important. Nice. And a question I always ask people on the show uh, is what music you listen to while you write. Most writers actually, you know. They, they find that a way to keep from losing their minds. Now, I can't uh, play the music because the lawyers have gotten a hold of us, but I still, oh. which makes me sad because I, that's one of the things I love doing, but I still am curious about what musical influences you had as working on the book. So the last time that I was on your pod, I said some jazz people that I listened to. Yes. And um, then I've listened to classical, but lately what I've been doing is stopping writing for periods of 10 to 15 minutes Mm. and listening to Neutral Milk Hotel and then going back and not listening to anything. So it's been my new sort of my, my new format. Is, wow. is actually not trying to do it at the same time. And Neutral Milk Hotel is sort of a, a sort of cult alternative band with a brass section, which I enjoy. Really? God, I wish we could play some of it over your I, words. And he, they would want you to play. They would want you to play and, and fight the power, but I <laughs> shouldn't. Maybe we'll drop him an email. Yeah. Get permission. No, hey, uh, Brent, I really do appreciate the time here on an early, or at least for me, early Saturday morning. Uh, Good luck in France, and thank you so much for appearing on the pod. Oh, thanks, Dave. The book is Futbolera, A History of Women in Sports in Latin America. Can't recommend it enough. We'll be back right after this, after a word from The Nation magazine. We are witnessing an explosion of progressive political energy. New candidates are running for public office high and low, and they're winning. Stay up to date and informed about these politicians every Tuesday when Next Left host and Nation National Affairs correspondent John Nichols interviews these insurgent politicians and activists who aim to reshape this nation's politics by bringing bold progressive policies to their cities, countries, states, and to D.C. Next Left will take us into the personal lives of a new wave of progressives to tell their stories and their hopes to change this country. 
The inaugural episodes of Next Left will feature notable guest interviews that you definitely won't want to miss, including the first guest, Representative Ilhan Omar. So please, check it out. The show is called Next Left. The host is John Nichols. You want to download it to your phone, and you don't want to miss it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the latest development around the death of Braden Bradforth. Okay, look, people might remember a podcast we did a couple of weeks back with the mother and attorney for the family of Braden Bradforth, a freshman football player at Garden City Community College in Kansas who lost his life following non-contact drills in August 2018. Now, to remind those who maybe didn't hear the show, for months the school stonewalled Braden's family during their efforts to find out what actually occurred. Videotapes were erased. Details of dodgy internal investigations that exonerated the school were sealed. Police were kept at a distance. Coaches moved on to other jobs, and a family was left looking for answers. Now, to combat the malignant indifference at play, Braden's mother, Joanne Atkins Ingram, waged a public campaign as she spoke to us here on the podcast and garnered the support of community leaders and politicians and pushed this fight into the public sphere. Now, at long last, that effort is bearing fruit. It was announced this week that Garden City Community College is going to hold an independent investigation into Braden's death. On Tuesday, the Board of Trustees signed off on the independent investigation. Jill Green, the attorney for Ms. Atkins Ingram, said to me, Joanne and I are very pleased with the news of the external investigation. It's a long time coming. We fought very hard for this. We are hopeful that Joanne will finally have the answers to her questions about Braden's death through this independent investigation. Now, a statement released by the school is very antiseptic. It talks about how much money they're going to spend on the investigation and all the rest of it. The point is, is that they are being forced to actually be held to account to what happened to Braden Bradforth. Now, Braden was an offensive lineman who weighed over 300 pounds and was found to have died of exertional heat stroke after running 36 sprints of 50 yards with a 30-second rest in between. Now, Braden and his teammates had eight seconds for each sprint. Think about that for a second. 36 sprints of 50 yards, 30-second rest in between, eight seconds per sprint. Try doing this on your own time, seriously. I tapped out after 10. I mean, it's damn near impossible, let alone if you're 300 pounds. Now, this non-contact practice took place on a scorcher of an evening, to even make it worse. And some of Braden's teammates said that drinking water during this drill was not allowed. This is called negligence, and hopefully we're finally getting to the bottom of this. Now, I want to read the words of Irv Muchnik, who's an independent journalist who runs the website Concussion Inc., and has been on this story from the outset. He emailed me the following comment. Braden Bradforth is the latest of 36 deaths in college football conditioning this century, and many of the others have had so-called independent investigations funded by the institution. So this is a good step, but not nearly enough. Will the GCCC investigation hold coaches and administrators accountable or merely tweak future procedures? Will the inevitable civil lawsuit by Braden Bradford's mother be accompanied by a criminal investigation already indicated by the known facts of reckless endangerment, manslaughter, and cover-up? 
Will Congress hold truthful hearings on this pandemic of non-game, non-scrimmage, non-traumatic football deaths so that the public understands them as such, not as isolated incidents that get paid off one by one as a cost of doing business? In other words, we will need to continue to watchdog this process moving forward. For Braden Bradforth and the three dozen college football players who died in non-contact drills since 2000. The hope for the Bradforth family is that with vigilance, justice long delayed will not be denied. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award was tough to find. This week, I'm just going to be honest, in my brain, it was just dominated and pounded by this Alabama law outlawing abortion, outlawing women's health, basically, outlawing reproductive rights. Uh, they, the law, I'm sure you heard about it, 99-year prison sentences for women who get abortions, stiffer penalties for doctors than rapists, felony to escort someone across state lines for the purpose of an abortion. This couldn't be uglier. Now, to be clear, as of right now, abortion is a constitutional right and available in all 50 states. Laws like this are entirely intended to get Uh, their validity up to the Supreme Court, the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court, the sexual assaulter Supreme Court, so they can strike down Roe versus Wade. It's staring us right in the face, and it's really ugly as sin. Now, the only athlete I saw who spoke out against it was actually former New Orleans Saints running back Reggie Bush. I wish there were more, but just stand up. Way to go, Reggie Bush. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Were too many people who sat their ass down. I don't even want to call people out, but just so many athletes who I expected to say something about the Alabama law, men and women, uh, stayed silent this past week. And I really wish they hadn't. Maybe that's going to change. But, you know, it's not like it's the athlete's responsibility to speak out every time there's a social injustice. But we also have to acknowledge the fact that uh, professional athletes have been at the center of the resistance to everything that's comprised this Trumpist agenda over the last several years. And so to hear them silent around this issue when they've been so loud and proud on other issues was something that definitely uh, was like a punch to the gut. Well, that's all we have on this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Brenda Elsey. Everybody should check out the book, Football Era. It really is something special. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please check out John Nichols' podcast, Next Left. It really does look like an important podcast. 
an important contribution to the pod universe. And that first interview with Ilhan Omar is a no miss because John Nichols is such a great interview. And when you combine him with Ilhan Omar, that's really special. Also, to everybody out there, uh, please keep supporting the Edge of Sports podcast. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Anything you can do to help support the pod is extremely appreciated. Uh, Everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.